Well, good morning and welcome, church. I feel like I should say welcome to myself. I've been away for a couple of weeks now, and, uh, and I'm back. it's good to be away, and it's, it's great to be home. I also want to name the elephant in the room. I'm wearing contacts this morning, and I have a mustache on. So... Yeah, if you're wondering what uh, a midlife crisis looks like for a pastor, this is it. Like, this is as wild as we get, folks. Like, buckle up. We're, we're going places here today. Uh, today's a special Sunday. Today is what we call an encounter, Move Up Sunday. And that means that kindergartners become first graders. We recognize first graders become second. And you guys can kind of do the math. It also means that we have one very special group worshiping with us today. And that is the newly minted sixth graders. Middle schoolers are here in the room and worshiping. And so I want to like take a moment and make a moment out of that and to recognize how important it is that we have every together, that we do life together. Uh, We are what you'd call an intergenerational church. Uh, So you kind of look outside of the church and you see the generations are all kind of like warring with each other, right? You see these like articles and stuff about how, you know, boomers don't like millennials and then millennials have a, have a beef with like Gen Zers and like all that sort of stuff. That's outside the church. That's like the world being the world. Uh, Inside the church, we follow after God's heart who says that every generation is a gift and has a gift to share with the other generations. And so middle schoolers, sixth graders in particular, you guys are so important to be here today because you have a gift to share with the rest of us. And we want to invite you to share that. I can think of two things off the top of my head. I have a middle schooler. And and so I kind of get this to an extent. The gift that you have to share with us, first of all, is your passion, like your energy. It energizes the rest of us. As we get older, we get a little less energetic. And then when we're around you, middle schoolers, it like does something. It creates this passion inside of us. The second thing is your questions. And sometimes it's a little annoying at times. I will be honest about that. But your questions about something maybe that I'll say or a lyric of a song that we had sung, the questions that you have, it drives us older generations, it drives us more seasoned generations into a more uh, grounded, into a deeper faith when we have to come up with some of the answers to your questions. So please, passion, questions, bring them. It makes us all better. And then for those of you um, more seasoned generations right? You have something to offer as well. Some of you are so seasoned as a generated, you're just full-on marinated, right? You have ups and downs of life, right? You have stories. Uh, Those of us on the younger side, uh, you have struggles and triumphs uh, that we have yet to go through. And those uh, ups and downs, those mountains and valleys are like a treasure yet to be shared. And so all of these generations all together we call that simply an encounter. We, we call it doing life together. And, and it's what makes this community so incredibly special. Uh, okay, today we're starting a brand new series called Your God is Too Small. And it's a provocative title. And I want to own that, right? Uh, I, I, I leaned into that uh, quite heavily. Just to make uh, a little something clear. Um, the picture, the image that we have of God in all the, the fullness of Jesus Christ himself that God is not too small. <laughs> that God is far from being too small. The God of Scripture, the God that we came in and we worship here today, that God is not too small, far from it. But sometimes what we do is, is maybe we cherry pick some verses, and sometimes what we do is, is we focus on a certain image of God, and so we start to shrink him. And I want to say, that God is a bit too small. Uh, so for example, sometimes we think, of, uh, we think of God as like the old man in the sky, that God is too small. 
I don't know why we do that. We think of God, he's got like his long flowy beard. He's called the Ancient of Days, the Alpha and Omega. And we, guess he's, we just assume that he is ancient, right? And, and we get this picture of God, maybe from Michelangelo's painting, right? With the long flowy beard, he's reaching out, he's creating, he's creating humankind. Presumably with the other hand, he's like reaching for a bottle of Metamucil or something, right? <laughs> Centrum Silver. And, and it's just, that's who God is. I mean, he's like old. And the, the problem with a too small God like that is that he, he doesn't get me, right? Like, he doesn't get the questions that I have, the, the things that I'm struggling with in life. He doesn't get the world today. I mean, he's, he's out of touch, right? He's old. He doesn't know how the internet works. He doesn't know how to rotate a PDF. How can he help me, you know? Like, what can he do for me? That God is too small. So we're like popping popping that bubble, popping that picture of who God is. Another popular one, we'll dig into this one next week, is the, the cop around every corner God, right? Like, like God is just, he's, he's waiting behind, the, the, behind the, the barricade or behind the street sign, just waiting for you to speed right by 58 and a 55 so he can turn on his flashers and like get you. And we're like, that's who God is. He's just waiting for us to mess up and then to shout guilt over us when he catches us doing wrong. And I, I, next week we'll dig into that one. We'll say that God is far too small. Uh, today we're talking about the too small God uh, as, as the, the God of the, of the warm fuzzy. Uh, the God of that, that little, little feeling, that tingle that we get in our, in our stomach or in our heart. That, that feeling that's, that's so good and so light and so joy. That feeling like everything is just going to be okay. You guys know warm fuzzies. You get warm fuzzies. Uh, every, every time I see a picture of a baby animal on the internet, it's warm fuzzies. No matter what's happening in the world, you just see one of these little furry baby animals and everything is going to be okay, right? Like we can figure this out. We're going to be all right. I saw a picture earlier this week of a baby uh, great white shark and it was adorable, you guys. Adore. And if we could look at a great white shark and call it adorable, we're going to be fine, you know? We're going to be all right. And it gives us these warm fuzzies. And, and sometimes our faith starts to hang on those warm fuzzies. We get it with people, uh, husbands and wives, you know, the butterflies. You're, you're falling for someone, right? And biblically, that, that's, that's not all that wrong. There's these passages like Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And so there's like this warm, fuzzy kind of faith. That's that's to an extent, okay, even encouraged. You open up the entire book of Song of Songs, and we've moved past warm, fuzzy. That's a, that's a steamy passion right there, the whole book. But sometimes that's all our faith becomes. I had a warm, fuzzy uh, encounter, experience uh, of God, one of, my, one of my first ones that led me into faith. Uh, middle school, a youth retreat, Actually, I think it was ninth grade youth retreat. And, you know, no idea what the speaker was talking about at all. But it was, it was like God, not him, the, the speaker, God was speaking to my heart. And, and it was emotional. And I don't, I don't discard that experience. I don't toss that aside. It's deeply meaningful to me. There are tears. There's so, so many tears, you know. In a, in, a, in a big way, a lot of my life has been lived out of that first moment, as experience of faith, experience of grace. God went from an idea to a person in my life. We're sending middle schoolers um, and high schoolers away on a summer camp, uh, never the same camp, today, like this afternoon. 
I pray for that. My daughter's going, I want that for her. But just because our faith starts a certain way doesn't mean it should stay a certain way. What led us to faith often won't be what sustains us in faith. Because sometimes the warm fuzzy starts to go away and then we're like, then what? And then we find ourselves asking, asking this question right here. Why can't I feel God? At least why can't I feel him like I used to? He used to be really present in my life. Why can't I feel him now? Why isn't he with me now? And sometimes these seasons can be long. Sometimes they can be short, but, but they have, a, have an impact, you know? Sometimes we know we're in that season. Sometimes it just like hits us when we ask somebody in a small group, a serving team, you know, around church, how's it going? Oh, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, You would not believe it. My husband got a promotion at work. The principal called just to let me know that my kid is a certified genius. I went grocery uh, shopping and a parking spot opened up right in front of the building. Hashtag blessed. Could not be better. And you're going, "I, I did not. My husband is still looking for, the, for that job, let alone a promotion. A principal called just to, just to let me know that my kid threw sand at another kid on the playground <laughs> again. <laughs> and the grocery store parking lot situation was so bad, I just looped around until I gave up, went home, and I ordered shipped. Like, I just, I gave up. <laughs> Hashtag whatever the opposite of blessed is. Like, I don't know. That's my life, you know? And these seasons start to last and go on and on and on. And so what we're doing today is we're taking an honest look at that. I'm saying, where is God when you can't feel God? And fortunately for us, it's not just me talking. We're going to go to scripture. We're going to go to a song in the Old Testament. And in a lot of ways, I got to warn you for what's coming. Because like worship has been awesome so far. And it's been high and it points to God and who we are in God. It's beautiful. And I'm about to like crash this thing right into the ground because we're doing Psalm 88 and it's a dark psalm. It's one of the only songs in the Bible that doesn't have this like turn to it, to good. It doesn't doesn't twist for the good at the end. Like a lot of the sad psalms, these lament psalms, protest psalms, like Psalm 13. uh, uh, How long am I going to wrestle with my thoughts, God? Day after day have sorrow in my heart. And then it twists for good at the end. Uh, And then at the very end, it's like, um, uh, but I will trust in your unfailing love. Psalm 88 has no twist for good at the end. But if you would be so courageous to journey with me through the psalm, just because there's no twist for good in the psalm doesn't mean that we are without hope. Let's, let's hang with me. Um, so if you'd like to follow along, we're going to go to Psalm uh, 88. And uh, we're going to do something a little bit new. This is continuing on my midlife crisis that we've got going on here. I've got an iPad on the screen, which is pretty wild. The reason for this, I want you to be able to see what I see in the psalm. And so we're going to kind of open this up for a little like old school Bible study. And we're going to notice a few things that I hope uh, helps kind of live in your heart a little bit more. Um, we're going to start off and just read the first little bit uh, here together. Um, psalm 88 begins this way. It's a song. It's a psalm of the sons of Korah for the director of music. According to Mehalath Linoth, I think is how you pronounce that. Um, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite. More on that in just a moment. Uh, we start off in verse 1 here. Uh, Lord, you are the God who saves me day and night. I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Uh, first thing that I want to point out in the psalm here is, uh, is you notice where the verse heading is. It's a little deceitful. It's, it's like halfway through the passage that I put on the screen for you. That's when you get the verse one. And I want to recognize that 
when Jesus opened up the Old Testament, which he just called the Testament, I, tell that jo- I said that joke like 80 times and it always lands the same way. The key to comedy is repetition. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> so when Jesus opens up his Bible, um, we have this tendency to read like all of this stuff as like editorial notes, like not Bible. When Jesus opened it up, uh, verse one would have been right here, a song. When Jesus reads the Bible, when Jesus reads scripture, this is all Bible for him. And so I think it, I think it should be for us too. Also, it adds a huge amount of context and points us outside of the psalm, which is going to be really, really helpful when we have a psalm that ends with no twist. Uh, so let's dig in. Let's just uh, point out a couple of things. Um, this song in his editorial notes that is Bible is for the director of music. We got that it's a song according to Mehalath Lenoff, and it's a maskal. Honestly, we don't like totally know what a Mehalath Lenoff, what a maskal is. Uh, biblical scholars kind of put this together and they think that what it is, uh, is is describing kind of the genre of the song and also the instrumentation. In this case, it's played with a, 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 like a guitar-like instrument, a stringed instrument. A uh, mascot, probably the genre is it's a sad song. It's a sad guitar song. If you missed the Eras Tour, welcome to Psalm 88. Taylor Swift fans, the psalmist is writing about how he and God are never, ever getting back together. No, this, I'm, it's too much. It's too far. It's too far. But the psalmist, we recognize, is a real person. Uh, this isn't just done in a vacuum. This is a real-time, real-place, real people involved. It's a psalm of the, the sons of Korah. You can read about that on your own a little bit later. But this one's from, uh, from Heman the Ezraite. It's important for us to recognize, especially with a psalm like this, is that this wasn't the only song that Heman wrote. Heman wrote a lot of music. A lot of them are included in our Psalter, is what we call that, a psalm, uh, the book of Psalms. It's 150 songs. Heman wrote a number of them. In fact, Heman is like the, the musical, the, the worship voice of a generation. When you hear Heman the Israelite, we're like, okay, it's a Bible person. Uh, what I want us to hear is it's like elevation worship. It's maverick city music. If you're of a certain generation, it's Chris Tomlin, right? He's, he's providing the lyrics and the music, the musical worship of the generation at the time. As this thing is about to go pretty dark, we recognize that if it can happen to Heman, it can happen to anybody, any one of us. And if you know somebody who's in that dark place, or if you're gonna like talk this little message away for another time when you find yourself in that dark place. I think it's extraordinarily comforting to know that the company that you're in is also including of somebody like Heman. The Ephraite, Ezraite. And in verse one, Lord, you are the God who saves me. And that's about as positive as it's going to get. We're gonna go to verse three. And we continue on this psalm, and I just want us to notice a a few things. He goes, I am overwhelmed with trouble, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down into the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. I mean, you notice the repetition, right? Heman has a hard time focusing on anything but his problems. I, I just want to make like a couple notes on that. The first one is how uh, incredibly difficult it is 
to remain outwardly focused and generous when you're in a time of suffering. When pain hits, we turn inward. It's natural. When somebody in your life is hurting and it seems like everything just becomes about them all the time, yeah, yeah, that's natural and that's normal. That's how it is. When I hit my thumb trying to nail a hammer in, which happens often, I'm a pastor, not a builder. When I, when I slam the hammer down on my thumb, I'm not a very charitable and benevolent person in that moment. The whole world is about me. It's about this one hurting part of me, not even the rest of me. I become a selfish person when I'm hurting. I think you do too. Heman certainly does. Uh, the, the other thing that I want to point out in the, in the passage is how profound his suffering is. Now there's a lot of biblical commentators who will try to point out and try to explain or identify like what the suffering is, that he, what, what's the particular darkness that his valley is all, all about. We know that it was heavy. We know that it was something more. Like, we know that this kind of, of suffering, it's, it's more than losing, car cre- losing his car cre- keys. It's more like losing his career. It, it's like losing a, a family member. It's losing a marriage. It's losing a relationship. It's, it's losing a child. It's, it's possibly it's losing his health, the way that he's talking about stuff here. It's heavy. I think it's helpful to notice in the psalm, and this could just be a dark thing, devotionally, when I'm reading through the psalms, I try not to spend too much time trying to figure out what is plaguing the psalmist. I think it's intentionally vague. I think he's a good worship leader, human. And a good worship leader, he doesn't make it about him, he goes, these could be your words too. Plug in your darkness. It's encouraged. Uh, we, we continue on in the, in the passage, and... Uh, Heman has got a couple, of, a couple of words to say to God, too. He goes, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. It's turning. This is the lament part. It's not just a sad song. It's actually a protest song. He's pointing his finger to God, up at God, and he's saying, you put me here. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. Let's just continue it on. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. I'm trying to do everything right Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Notice the capital D. Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Of forgetfulness? It's five words that he's using that all mean the same thing. God, I'm trying to do everything right over here. And I'm on the edge of death. And if I die, there's going to be no one to tell the world about how good and benevolent you are. So show up and do something, would you? And like I said, we never get a twist. What we do get is the very last verse in this psalm. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. 
darkness is my closest friend. And actually in the language that Heman wrote in, uh, in, in Hebrew, darkness is the last word that's used. Word order is a bit more fluid in Hebrew. So Heman, Heman could say, uh, my closest friend is darkness. Which is really looking, I think, exactly at God and saying, you know what? Darkness is a better friend than you are. Because at least with darkness, I know what I'm getting. Darkness is consistent, unlike you. Period. And that is the end of the psalm. Before we go down, before we go on, I want to pause there and to recognize uh, it's human. At times, it's, it's you and it's I. And should God grant us a long enough life, I think it's all of us. Uh, I've got a picture on the screen here. I'm wondering if anybody can help us out with the name of this gentleman. C.S. Clive Staples Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Uh, just a mountain of, uh, of an author, a novelist, kind of an armchair theologian. He would never say that but that's exactly what he is. He wrote powerfully, helpful, instructive, inspiring books. Uh, many of them, you, you might know the Chronicles of Narnia, one of them, uh, The Line, the Wish, and the Wardrobe, Mere Christianity. I think in a huge way, God used him to like, carry Western Christianity through World War II with our faith intact. I mean, just a mountain of a Christian, so inspiring, so energetically uh, fired up, Christians for the difficult road that lied ahead of them uh, in the early 20th century. Not always a Christian. He uh, grew up and professed uh, atheism for most of his life. In his mid-30s or so, he became a Christian, started following after God, and just poured everything into it. It's beautiful. That's when he wrote those books, Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity. Uh, He would have a thought. God would give him a thought, and then he would write about it. In his mid-50s, he met a lady. Her name was Joy, and he wrote about that too. I mean, the book was about faith, but you can't help but recognize her name was Joy, and the book he wrote was Surprised by Joy. And four years later, he lost her to cancer, and he wrote about it. In the style of Heman, he wrote a grief observed about how he was doing everything right. And when he prayed, he heard the sound of a door slammed in my face and the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. There are no lights in the windows of faith. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seems so once. Why is God so present a commander in the time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? As we journey with Heman through the, the, the valley into this darkness, and, and whatever darkness is yours, please write it in there. 
have to recognize how powerful that is. We can't just gloss over it. We have, to, we have to dig into it because we have to realize what's at stake. You have to realize your faith is at stake in that valley when that darkness had, sets in. You have to recognize that it is in that particular valley that countless of others have lost their faith. I think even more have become professional cynics. Like they have allowed this this permanent despair or disillusionment to crowd in on their life. And now they just own that. And they're angry and they're bitter. And that's what they hang on to. You have to recognize how powerful that darkness is. Uh, C.S. Lewis names it. He wrote these words. He wrote more helpful words after that and hopeful words after that. He went into the valley. God did not leave him in the valley. That that little uh, subscript at the beginning of Psalm 88 that a lot of us, a lot of times we skip over because it's like, who's him in the Ephraim? Like, I don't know who that is. It's so important to recognize he's the worship leader. He's the voice of a generation. The Psalm ends. You know what, God? A better friend right now is darkness. But those aren't the only words that he wrote. That's not even the last song that he wrote. He would pick up his pen again. He would pick up his instrument again and he would sing new songs. He would teach us worshipful songs. But in the valley, he made the mistake of thinking that that present darkness was absolute and impermanent. And if I could point at a mistake that he made, if I could be that audacious, I would highlight that that he was mistaken on that. His darkness was not permanent and it was not absolute. We started this time together by asking that simple question, you know, oh, why is it that I can't feel God? Let's try, to, let's try to answer that question in light of what we know about the psalm already. Uh, the, the first one is kind of the low-hanging fruit, the, the go-to answer. Why can't I feel God? And a lot of times it's because sin has separated us from God. And it's not like in a big kind of way, like sin has infected the whole world and it's why like bad things happen to good people. It's like just sin is present in the world because it's so messed up. I'm talking about like individual and personal sin. Like I think we should start there and say maybe there are some things that are like cutting us off from God and cutting us off from a relationship with God. Specific sins. And that's why we need to do life together. That's why we need to be in community because we need people around us that are just like, dude, there is something in your heart that is keeping you away from the the experience, the presence, and the grace, and the love, and the power of God in your life. Maybe it's a pride thing. You can't look up at God when you're looking down at everybody else, a C.S. Lewis quote. Maybe maybe it's a pride thing. Maybe it's an envy thing. You're like looking around at everybody else and you're playing this comparison game, which is really a trap. And you lose, first of all, and then everybody else loses. Maybe it's an envy thing, and you just got to knock it off, all right? It, it, it doesn't look good on you. Maybe it's laziness. Maybe it's an apathy of, like, you're just not doing anything. Sin separates us from God, and we have to recognize that. Some of you are going to do a high ropes course this summer. I hope it's a good time for you. I hope you stay safe and have fun. Make sure to use both ropes. You know what I'm talking about? Both Because you do the high ropes course and you get to like one section of the course and to advance on to the next part of the course, what you got to do is take one of the ropes and hook it onto the new part, the next part of the course. You got to take the other rope and then do it on the new one, right? But you could imagine what would happen if you get onto the platform and you want to move on on the course and you just do one rope. You can't move on throughout the course. You can't advance in the course while you're still hanging on to the past. 
You can't unclip that. Sin works very much the same way. If you're holding on, you can't move on in your relationship with God if you're still holding on to the past version of yourself. But what we see here in Heman, I want to be clear with this. Sin, personal sin, is not the issue that's keeping him and preventing him from experiencing God. And I just need to name that because not all the time when we feel alone, it's because of sin. And I think it's just helpful for us as a community when somebody is struggling and suffering not to say, well, you know, what did you do? Dirk Tarkin told us about the thing about like unclipping from the past. Maybe you should try that. It's not always that. Sometimes it is, and we should be honest about that, but it's not always that. Uh, first thing is sin separates us from God. Why can't he feel God? Why can't we feel God sometimes? Honestly, because we've entirely rom-commed what faith is about. You know what I mean? Like romantic comedy. Like we, we, we've turned this, this faith journey with God into something that it was never supposed to be. We turned it into like a Nicholas Sparks novel of like, man, my walk with Jesus, if, I, if I'm not kissing Jesus on a beach in the rain with a message in a bottle, something, I don't know, then like it's not real faith, you know? It's like, no, that feelings matter, emotions matter, just probably not like everything, you know? We, we look at Jesus and who Jesus is. He lived a very difficult life. And he said, in this world, you'll have trouble. And then he went and died. In that same speech, the trouble speech, he also said, a servant is not above his master. So, you know, expect difficult waters ahead. We would be wise to. But I also don't think that Heman is in danger of romanticizing faith. I think that's something we do. What Heman is struggling with and the reason why Heman can't feel God, experience God in that moment, is that God is drawing him closer. There's this expression I picked up that I really like. Uh, deprivation draws desire. Deprivation draws desire. When we don't have something, it draws out for us a desire for that thing more. We think about hungering and thirsting, which is appropriate because in a moment we're going to do communion. We think about hungering and thirsting. When we hunger for something, if we don't hunger for something, we, we tend not to eat. Uh, if, if we're not thirsty, we might, we might not drink. When we hunger, that's when we look for food. When we're thirsty, it's when we crave something to drink. Deprivation draws desire. When we, have, when we experience that like longing to connect with God, it's God's way of drawing us into him. That deprivation draws desire. Not of the things of God, that's separate, but of God himself. And that's the part that confuses us. And I think that's the part that confused Heman. Because God is drawing him in. How? He like took everything away from me. And Job is like, I get that story. I read that book. I, I wrote that book. You see, the thing about Job in the Old Testament, uh, it starts off and Satan and God like have this conversation and Satan looks at God and goes, oh, sure, yeah, Job, right? Like what a goody two-shoes, what an amazing guy that is, God. You know he's only with you because of everything that you've given him. Like the, the, the quote, the line, does he serve you for nothing? No, he doesn't serve you for nothing. You've blessed him so incredibly much. He's using you, God. Take away the stuff. And he'll bolt. And if you've read the story of Job, everything is taken away from him. Job does not bolt. He's got some words. And maybe Heman borrowed a couple of lines of Job 
in his conversation, but he still, Job talks to God. Heman talks to God. This whole thing is in the conversation, is in the context of a conversation with God. He's laying it at God's feet and saying, this is not my problem, this is our problem. And we can see in those moments that Job and Heman, and maybe you, find out that Jesus is all you need when Jesus is all you have. Earlier I suggested Heman made a mistake in thinking that his darkness was absolute and permanent. Uh, This was a bit unplanned, so we're going to go back to the iPad. I want to point something out. I want to point out a line. This is the power of God right here. This is, I love this, right? This is, this is who God is. This is the power that God has. Um, Heman wrote these lines and they're intended to be sarcastic and cynical. You can like hear the bitterness come through. When, when Heman writes, he goes, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Right, he's angry at God. Is your love declared in the grave? And we have the perspective of New New Testament Christianity. We have the perspective of knowing Christ crucified on the cross who declared, God, why have you forsaken me? You have taken darkness and put it on me absolutely. And darkness came over that whole land because that was the absolute, that was the permanent darkness that Jesus took on himself and he buried it in the grave. But Jesus didn't stay in the grave. Jesus rose up from the grave. And so when Heman wrote thousands of years earlier, is your love declared in the grave, church? Yes, Yes, it is. The empty grave shouts the love of God. And if you haven't felt close to him lately, Man, I hope you have this burning desire to. He's worth giving him time. He's worth hanging in there. Faith is worth not letting go or becoming bitter or cynical. And if you hunger and if you thirst, have I got a meal for you? As we celebrate communion, some of you in their darkest place need this meal most of all. And you're going to hear these words, the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. May you not miss the presence of Jesus in that moment. I'd like to invite you everywhere, uh, all of our locations, online, Fulton Heights, Kenwood, let's all stand up. And let's hear these words together, can we? Uh, these words that on the night that Jesus was betrayed he took bread and breaking it he said this is my body do this in remembrance of me and in the same way after the meal he took the cup and he said this is the blood of my new covenant do this in remembrance of me for every time we're nourished at this table not physically today, but spiritually, we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ again. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.